Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I'm your host, Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined, as I often am, by my wonderful collaborator and co-host, Siora Ford. Hi, Siora. Hello. So if people listen to this show, I think they know one thing, which is that you are extremely online and enjoy time on Twitter, especially following all your K-pop accounts. But one <laughs> of the you know interesting trends, I think, that's been emerging, especially in the tech and software space over the last few months, is folks moving to new platforms. And Mastodon is one of the most popular that I see coming up in my feed about where people are migrating to for various reasons. They want to be on a more federated space that they own. You know, Mastodon has been around for a long time and has seen waves of popularity. The recent one seems to be maybe the most significant to date. Sierra, have you dabbled in this area at all or know folks who have made the transition? I haven't. I know a lot of people who have made the transition and a lot of people were saying they've moved to like LinkedIn or their email newsletter or Mastodon. Mm -hmm. And the first time I was hearing about Mastodon, like a few months ago, I was like, eh, like, I don't know if it'll really like stick, but it seems like it actually has like a substantial hold on the community. So I am heavily considering trying to figure out all the Mastodon stuff and like hopping on that train too. Well, if that is the case, I think we have a great guest today, Nova, who is the president of the Niven Lemmy Foundation. That is the foundation that oversees Hackaderm, which is one of the bigger sort of Mastodon instances where a lot of tech people have gone. Also does stuff over at GitHub and is here today to tell us a story about helping to scale and support some of the influx of new folks who are using Mastodon. So Nova, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Awesome. Great to meet you, Benjamin. And it's really lovely to meet you, Siora. Likewise. So say it for me one more time and I'll say it back to you. What is the name of the foundation? So it's a nonprofit foundation called the Niven Lee Foundation. That is the the overarching governing body. That is basically the legal entity that is the front for Hackaderm, the Mastodon server. So I think right within that, right, we get this sense that this is much more of a open source project, that this is distributed in a way that is different from maybe a standard corporation that owns a social media site. Yeah, for folks who aren't familiar, what is Mastodon and, and why do these separate entities exist in order to govern it as opposed to you know your traditional corporate organization? I mean, I think decentralized is like the keyword there. And Siora, I would be interested in your experience on Twitter. I feel like the word decentralized is like, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different yes. people. Yeah. And, and I definitely struggle like saying the word myself and also just understanding what people mean when they use the word. I think in this context, what it really means to me anyway, is that we have a lot of small communities that can federate with each other or basically can engage with each other and they all speak the same protocol. So it's it's small groups of folks that exist on the same Mastodon instance. And if you're on the same instance as someone, you share a lot of the same like home timeline and like your home feed and your content. And so we're seeing a lot of folks group together based off of their interests or their core values or their beliefs or, you know, their the way that they want their their social media to be governed is important to some folks. Other folks have a, a strong interest in like data privacy, for example, and, and they definitely don't want their data to go anywhere that they don't know about. So they're they're focusing on these like strongly typed private instances. And so anyway, there's all these instances in the world and there, there's hundreds of them out there. Some of them are 
big and have hundreds of thousands of people. And some of them have only one person on them and all of them federate with each other. And so instead of there being like a large centralized corporation like Twitter that tries to do all of the content moderation and set all of the privacy policies, you actually have like an entire menu to pick from and you can change too. So if you start on one server and you don't like it, or you want to go try something else, you can, you can move to another one. And, and when I think now, anyway, when I think of decentralized, that sort of like model of like a lot of different sized servers, all sending messages back and forth really comes to mind. The thing that I can closest relate this to, to like understand it is probably Discord, even though it's not like a an exact copy of each other. But Discord also has like the separate servers where you can like each server has their own rules and moderators and all that kind of stuff. So it's not necessarily like you're scrolling through like a huge Discord chat with like everybody getting the same things, but you can choose like which server you want to be on based off of like the standards the server like implements in the subject or interest of the people in the server. Right. So Nova, you mentioned there being, you know, these servers in different, you know, parts of the world or, you know, different communities with different standards. So who is responsible for spinning up a server and maintaining it? You know, if the community wants new features or lots of people are joining and suddenly you have a lot more data or activity to deal with. Again, within a corporation, I I have a fairly clear idea of how that gets done, how does that happen in a more federated distributed system like a Mastodon? This is this is a great question. So and, and this is exactly why we, you know, started this conversation off with there's a nonprofit that you need to know about in order for us to like begin to have the the other discussion about Hackaderm, which is just the social media instance. And so I think like I would say that it it's very similar, like you said, Siora, to to Discord, where you can have a lot of instances. And I also think it shares some similarities with like IRC or even email to some extent, right? You know, you, you can have your email client, you can email anyone in the world. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, that that's exactly how Mastodon works, right? If, if there's another server online, you theoretically could go and find them and, you know, send them a message, right? And it's, it's public and it, it looks and feels an awful lot like a tweet. So to answer your question, you know, who is responsible for maintaining this? It's, it very much reminds me of like, early 1990s IRC, right? Like it's, it's kind of just like servers show up. They're not necessarily (laughs) coupled to a corporation. Maybe it's just, you know, some person who set one up in their basement. And then I think what I'm noticing is as servers grow, they all start to solve these really interesting problems. And there's like three or four main problems. Every server kind of has to start to take seriously as they start to get a, a decent size. And I think you see folks respond to it very differently, right? Some folks ask for donations and, and it just becomes like a, there's a single person who is like, has the whole keys to the kingdom and they just do a good job and they, they run the whole thing off donations. I think we're taking like a more structured approach and trying to like really get a good what I call like a medium-sized community. So we'll have a small team of folks and we have some like ideas of how we want to try to lift marginalized people up in the industry based off of like our small teams that we're trying to fund with donations for operating our infrastructure, right? It's a good opportunity for folks like myself, who is a principal engineer at GitHub to partner and pair with folks who have maybe never operated production infrastructure before. So we're really trying to take like our opportunity of like doing open source operations seriously. And that, in my opinion, anyway, like you don't see that with Discord, right? There isn't like a server that you need to go keep online and, you know, roll out kernel updates to and actually like, you know, go and manage security keys to the thing. It's, and, you know, we have public graphs online and there's, there's a lot that goes into to operating it to answer your question, Benjamin. 
Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that holds a lot of people back from joining a service like Mastodon versus a more traditional corporate-owned social network is they feel there's a higher bar to entry, more complexity in terms of what the user needs to manage. And then obviously, let's say you wanted to start a community or wanted to help grow it, there becomes quite a bit of back-end complexity. Can you talk to us a little bit about this great blog post you wrote? It's called Leaving the Basement, and this deals with some of the challenges you went through and how you solved them moving from a small to medium-sized instance. And as you mentioned, doing this in a very public way, trying to partner with folks in an open source way, and having to solve problems not in sort of a profit-driven way, but in a community-driven way. You know, Where can we find the resources and do that together? Yeah, so um, I think the important takeaway here to kind of start the conversation off is we definitely did not get started with any intention of this thing blowing up, right? Like, I think, like, honestly, I I felt very similar to, like, what you just said, Siora, which was like, oh, yeah, I've heard about this Mastodon thing. Like, I'm kind (laughs) of considering checking it out. I don't really know what it's going to look like or feel like. And I certainly had a, a large amount of doubt and some reservations about the thing, right? It just... It felt weird. And the first time I looked at it, I was like, holy wow, like this UI is from like 1995. (laughs) And it started to kind of trigger some of those like nostalgia feelings of like my early internet childhood. It like, it felt kind of good, but it was also a little unsettling at times. And so like, you know, it started off with my Twitch stream. So I have a small Twitch stream that I use to kind of escape from work where I can go and like have my community and we like do like nerdy computer science things. And we wanted to set up a little you know, desk Discord for ourselves. And that little Discord turned into a little Mastodon server. And I think for the first eight or nine months, there was less than 100 people on our server, right? It was, it was close friends and family. And we were like sharing cat pics with each other. And that was about the extent of it. And then everything started to happen at Twitter. And, you know, it turns out one of my friends turned into two of my friends, turned into five, 20, 100. And I have some, you know, medium-sized names in tech that I've had the privilege of investing into a relationship with, and they joined, and they were public about it. And then next thing you know, we have, you know, 20,000 people joining this thing, and it's running on this little experimental server in my basement. And we had, like, a real production crisis. We we had a real, like, infrastructure need, and I, I had to kind of be like, well... A good thing I know how to solve this problem because yeah. I do this for my day job. But like, this is no longer a hobby project. This is, you know, we're we're doing hundreds of requests per second. We have people's data here and their passwords, and and this is like we we have to start taking this seriously. And you know, this journey has been really wild to get to where we are today. Yeah, I can imagine. It sounds like it. I actually I can't imagine being in that position of having to like put on your infrastructure hat all of a sudden when you were just like chilling on your Mastodon server and everything blows up all of a sudden. You had that level of expertise of like knowing how to deal with these kind of like infrastructure issues. And I'm wondering like for someone who doesn't have that kind of like knowledge and background, how could they navigate an issue like this? That's a very good question. So Gabe, who was unable to join today, has a really good answer to this. So DigitalOcean has learned from, you know, our experience, right? Like if you go read the blog, um, you can see that that my relationship with Gabe is is what really helped to get Hackaderm specifically to a point of where it is today. He mm. was a user of of the service and offered some of DigitalOcean services. And I think that in the past six months alone, you know, we've seen 
We've seen cloud providers take an interest to Mastodon and giving folks like the the like button click experience, which which is one way to go about doing it. I think we're seeing the open source community do what the open source community always does in situations like this, right? Blogs are coming out. People are are forming Discord channels that are all about just operating Mastodon, right? Like small micro communities are forming. A, and, you know, we're seeing like even in those communities, like sub niches form of like, let's go operate Mastodon on Arch Linux and let's go operate Mastodon on Kubernetes. And like, let's talk about the trade-offs therein. Right. So I think that like, this is one of the reasons why I, I love open source is because, you know, you realistically can, can have an opportunity to go and, and work side by side with folks who have done this before. And, and you get a chance to kind of learn via osmosis from the different infrastructure patterns and, and different things and tools that, that folks are using. So right. I think there's, there's a lot of options available from, you know, cloud providers to, you know, getting yourself involved with a community that can, that can help you learn more and help walk you through the process. All right, everybody. Today's episode has a very special sponsor, yours truly, Stack Overflow. Now, we all know the frustration of having to search for answers on internal wikis that have gone stale or trying to find that one email or chat thread from months ago with the information you need to get unblocked now. There is a better way. Stack Overflow for Teams is a knowledge base that has all the features you already know from stackoverflow.com, but reimagined for your organization. So you and your teammates can collaborate, quickly find solutions, and be more productive. It's like a private Stack Overflow for your organization's internal knowledge and documentation. And it's used by companies like Microsoft and Bloomberg and Dropbox and many, many more. You can always try it out. We have a freemium version. The first 50 seats are free. If you're interested in that, head on over to s.tk slash teams dash podcast. That's s.tk slash teams dash podcast. Let them know the show sent you. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking 50 seats won't cut it, you know, I've got more customers than that. I've got some good news for you. Head on over to stackoverflow.co slash teams. That's stackoverflow.co slash teams. And if you use the promo code teams win, you can sign up for a basic or business account and get 30% off. New customers can get 30% off. That is pretty sweet. All right, everybody, please enjoy the discount. Enough spiel. Let's get on with the show. I want to touch on one particular part of this when this uh, is made into a movie for television. (laughs) Uh, This is the most dramatic part. You connected, as you mentioned, with Gabe over at DigitalOcean and were reaching a point where you were really worried about your sort of initial home infrastructure failing. So you needed a way to get a terabyte of data to DigitalOcean off of disks that were already failing. And you came up with, and I suppose this is apropos of the Mastodon sort of mission statement, a way to do that with the help of your users who were, you know, sort of, and their use of the site. Can you walk folks through this sort of clever solution here? Yeah. So we had, we had roughly a terabyte of data right back there. And it, it very much started out as like, it was a few cat pictures and then a few cat pictures turned into more cat pictures. And then it turned into videos <laughs> and then it turned into more videos. And, and then Gabe joins and, and Gabe has a farm. And so he was, I guess the story goes, he was trying to upload a rooster video and he got a 500. And that was kind of how this whole thing started. And you know, if you read the blog post, it goes into all the technical detail of like where we started to see like IOPS start to lag on disk and the cascading failure it caused at the edge and how like all of our systems were loosely choreographed and interdependent with each other. 
and and that's you know that's just the mastodon architecture in general mm-hmm. and so what the problem was was we had the terabyte of data back here we had all of these different services running on different computers and we were moving them around and trying to massage data in different ways to just get like a decent overview like at this point all of the normal performance engineering like big observability tasks were kind of off you know off the table because it was so new and and all of that requires a lot of time to set up so we were just trying to like rough something in and so what we ended up discovering was that it was actually serving the data that was causing the problem. So when somebody would like request a, like one of these cat videos on our social media server, it would have to go and fetch it from these disks behind me and it would have to go and propagate out at the edge. And it would ideally sit in a cache out at the edge where then, you know, if folks referenced it again in the near future, it would just serve from the edge and not from Mm -hmm. here at the core infrastructure. And so what we did is we, we used this Nginx primitive called try files and we put the try files behind a reverse proxy. And what we first tried to do is we would try to receive the files from DigitalOcean. And if those files were not there, we would then we would go and we would get them from back here and we would serve them up at the uh, the edge layer. We then had like configured Mastodon to write to DigitalOcean using some DNS tricks where like we used like one DNS name to read and another one to write. And then that <laughs> DNS name would resolve to the reverse proxy and route accordingly. And so basically every time somebody loaded a cat video on their phone, it would download the video from the server and put it out on the edge somewhere and serve the traffic from there for you know up to 24 hours. And then every time somebody would try to reference it again, it would, it would go and propagate back to DigitalOcean from the edge. And then right. the next time somebody tried to view the cat picture, it would actually receive from DigitalOcean instead of from our server here. So the more people used our service, the faster we got Mm. our data off of the racks and into DigitalOcean and the more relevant the data was. So like one of the problems we had with moving that much data was like, we could just start at the top and work our way down. But like, who knows if we're going to spend the first like three days transferring all of this data that nobody ever looks at. So we were very much transferring like the hot data that people were like actively looking at. So as, you know, topics are trending and and people are like looking at different things, that's the data that was getting moved to DigitalOcean first. I just, I just want to call out, there's, there's a guy from Germany who's a volunteer in our community. His name's Malte. He was the one who had put together the original plan for this. So I definitely don't want to take credit for his work. It is a very fascinating Nginx trick that I had never seen before. And uh, I learned a lot just from, from seeing how he laid this out and how he had set everything up. Yeah, I have some experience with like cloud infrastructure and cloud engineering and all that kind of stuff. I would have never... <laughs> ever imagine like this was the way to solve this problem especially yeah with the dns trick that is so clever i would have never thought of that so that's really cool how long did it take to come up with that solution so i think he like had gotten some help from like there's like the a mastodon blog that talks about the tri files directive in general and we were already kind of experimenting over the course of several days like, how do we want to do this? And we were trying to like S copy data or, or sorry, our clone data up in the background and serve traffic over here and configure these caches different ways. So like we, it was an ongoing effort. And I think at this point in time, you know, everybody who was volunteering, it was like me and six other folks. I mean, we were working around the clock, like quite literally, like I had, I would go to sleep and right before bed, I would like hand off my work to like volunteers in the UK and Germany and they would work until I woke up. And then I would work until they woke up. And 
this was just an ongoing process, just keeping the servers online while also trying to come up with like a plan of what we want to do. I think this is the the plan that we're talking about with like the reverse proxy at the edge that would write back to DigitalOcean. This was like a probably a consequence of all of our our work and infrastructure we had set up. And if we didn't have servers online in the right place, which took several days to get online, I don't think any of this would have been possible. So I think in hindsight, it took us about 30 days when everything was said and done with to go from we have a small server that's you know running on hardware no bigger than a Raspberry Pi to we have a data center in Germany and we've reached out to an attorney, right? Like in, <laughs> in 30 days, like that was like around the clock with, you know, six to 10 people working 24 seven. Amazing. I loved what you said about the more people used it, the more you were able to complete this migration as well as understand, you know, how to do it efficiently, what, you know, the data that needed to be moved first. It almost feels like the power of a, you know, like a peer to peer file sharing system or something like that. The more people are online, you know, with a certain file to share, the faster things can go. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. So where are you hoping to go from here? Are you going to um, continue, I guess, sort of, yeah, migrating away from home systems towards, you know, more professional data centers? And are you considering what the goals are for the size and scope of the community in the coming year? I think at this point, if I was to give like a like quick state of Hackaderm, I would say that our infrastructure problem is, I wouldn't say it's solved, but it's stable. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're definitely seeing like, we have a team of volunteers who are working on our infrastructure and they're rolling out changes constantly, but it's, it's no longer disruptive. People like can casually work, you know, a few hours here, a few hours there. It's, it's not like a big event like it was. There is a much more important discussion that I certainly was not prepared for that I'm kind of considering like the the day two, like the second day Mastodon discussion, mm. which is we have a social media service and people use it and it's online and it is, we have a tremendous amount of content moderation that we have to do. And that is a very difficult problem to solve. And I, I'm very proud of our, our team of mods who have taken this very seriously And we have yet another completely independent group of volunteers that is about four times the size of our infrastructure group that their entire job is just helping us with content moderation and dealing with like, how do we be respectful of different communities? How do we manage these reports that come in? How do we communicate? What actions do we take? How do we take actions and what judgment calls do we make? And it's, it's pretty difficult there. And so I would say that we definitely have like an interesting set of technical challenges just keeping the servers online, but now we have all the major problems of a major social media service and you know those legal problems in there as well. That was the thing I was thinking about the most with Macedon because it is like each instance is like governed by a separate like group of people. I was wondering how like moderation and conflict resolution and rules and regulations will like be put in place. So yeah, I'm not surprised at this, like a, a pretty tricky issue to deal with. Yeah. I think, you know, there's court cases that are happening right now that have a lot of implications for, you know, how social media sites need to govern themselves or what, you know, liability sites with user-generated content assume. And you make a great point, which is that the most difficult part of any of these is not necessarily the engineering, although that part is difficult, but ultimately the human, political, cultural, and sort of you know free speech questions that arise. Yeah, we'll have to check back in a year and see how it's going. Do you think that 
that's an area where you're going to lean on some like sort of best practices from existing social networks or maybe the old IRC days? Or do you think that there's new paradigms, you know, new ideas that need to be tried out here? So what we're doing is, so we've established a, a nonprofit called the Niven Lee Foundation that exists above Hackaderm. And Hackaderm is one of the foundation's projects. And that foundation is, is set on a, a precedent of like my personal experience of like managing and maintaining open source software over the past decade. So working on various large open source projects, my work at GitHub, and just being involved either as a contributor or a maintainer of different open source efforts around the world. So we've learned a lot as far as like the importance of a code of conduct and, and the rules of engagement and like more importantly, how to respond to it, right? What like what are the rules of like how does one go and first make the decision on if a code of conduct violation has happened? But then like what do you do about it afterwards? And like do you forgive people? Do you let them back in? Right? People people make mistakes. And and there's there's a lot to unpack here. So we're we brought in a fair amount of history from just open source projects in general. I think we're also bringing in a fair amount of history of like online community management. So Quintessence, our executive director, she has a tremendous amount of experience with like the developer advocacy community managing like there's a developer advocacy Slack and she's a moderator there as well. And similar problems have come up where you have to, you know, deal with people and, and it's, it's very like judgment based and it's, it's very perceptive and, and, you know, what did they mean versus what did they say? And so we're, we're taking some lessons there and we're putting together a nonprofit wide, what we call the Nivenly Covenant, which just is basically like our global code of conduct for all of our projects. And Hackaderm is just like one of the projects that like, I wouldn't say enforces, but like follows the code of conduct and contributes back to it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. As we do this time of the show, we want to shout out someone who came on Stack Overflow and spread a little knowledge, help to save a question from the dustbin of history. A lifeboat badge was awarded to MetaQLA, how to get an error message in a string in Golang. If you've been curious, well, we have an answer for you and it's helped over a hundred and sixty-seven thousand people over the years. So a question that a lot of folks had themselves. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can always email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you enjoy the program, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. And my name is Sierra Ford. I am a developer advocate at Off Zero by Acta. You can find me on Twitter. My username there is C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. My blog is Sierra.dev. Thanks for having me. It was great to meet you both. My name is Chris Nova. I am the president of the Nivenly Foundation, the infrastructure admin for the Hackaderm social media site, and a principal engineer at GitHub. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, you should follow me on Mastodon and shoot me a message there. If not, you can check me out on Twitch at twitch.tv slash chrisnova. And you can also find out more about what we're doing at nivenly.org. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. 